Well, hello everyone. How are you guys doing today? So good to see all of you. Um, hey, we are going to just jump right in because uh, we are doing First Peter very quickly. And I'm not great at covering large amounts of scripture in a short amount of time. Um, so today's message will be approximately 2.2 hours. No, I'm just joking. Uh, we are going to cover a lot of ground, but um, there are only three things I want us to consider uh, today. And, and really the title of the message is the theme of the message, uh, which is Christian living is incarnational. Um, Christian living is incarnational. Now that is a kind of a complex theological statement, but it's worth expanding on. You know, Martin Luther once said that uh, when he was asked uh, in his book, Table Talk, he loved to get together with, with young people and talk about theology. And, and he's, he was asked, where is heaven? And Luther's response is, wherever God is. Where's God? Well, there is nowhere that he isn't. And God is near us, not because uh, he's some sort of creepy voyeur who, you know, his omnipresence is not a comforting thing unless we recognize that he's near us because he cares about us, because he wants to know us, and he wants us to know him. But I think the opposite side of that is what it then is sin. I was reading uh, Karl Barth, and Barth said that sin is stupidity. I really like that. Stupidity is very clever at believing everything at the wrong time, saying everything to the wrong people, and regularly neglecting the simple, the necessary, and what is required right now in order with certain instinct to want and to do what is complicated, what is superfluous, and what at the present moment would only be disruptive. These two realities actually speak into the complexity of what it means to follow Jesus. The God is present, and he is nearer to us than we are to our own thoughts. Um, but sin, which is stupidity, continues to be our problem, which turns our focus inward toward ourselves, uh, and it hinders not only our relationship with God, but it hinders our relationship with one another. And that stupidity of sin is actually what blinds us or deafens us to the presence of God. The answer to that dilemma uh, and some, you know, I heard someone say, sin is where God is not. No, that is foolish. From the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, God is continually putting himself into the middle of sinful humanity without sinning. He is holy. He is perfect. But, and sin has no place in his being. But remember what it says of Jesus, the incarnation, God's entrance into the human predicament, the creator becomes creature, God becomes man. And Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And that is a central tenet of the historic Orthodox faith. But incarnational living is this, is that the problem of sin is that it makes it impossible for us to reach God or to discover that still soft voice. We need God's intervention into our lives. My friend David Zoll just wrote a really cool new book. I'm excited we're going to get it for the bookstore called Low Anthropology. Low Anthropology. Such a wonderful title. And as I've always said to you, and if you've been coming to Door of Hope for any length of time, you're not bigger failures than God already knows that you are. And that's the most gracious thing I can say to you. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more fully you will realize how 
impossible it is to live up to his standards unless he comes and lives in me. So incarnational living then would be wrapped up in this simple statement that Paul often and frequently used in, a various, in various forms. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. This tells us then that the danger of reading a, a book like 1 Peter is it very quickly can just turn into behavior modification. And we quickly want to turn into, we want to qualify certain statements. We want to qualify uh, what particular kinds of sins. And we will do that in order to make ourselves feel better in the world and make, our, make ourselves feel like we're achieving some sort of, some sort of holy living that in actuality, as, as John Calvin himself said, the human heart is an idol factory. The moment you pull up one, it just reveals a whole string of others. So sin is not something we escape as Christians. Sin is something we know as Christians has been dealt with once and for all through Jesus. But it still wreaks havoc in our lives. So incarnational living then is connected to what we talked about last week. And, and like I said, it's easy to look at Peter and you get caught up in these sort of hot topic conversations. Submission to government, submission to masters, submission to husbands. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a violation of my modern sensibility. I was looking at uh, the, um, it's always a good thing uh, as a founder of a church to look at the reviews of your church. It's a great way to feel awesome about yourself because it'll be some people from Dorville be like, it's awesome. We love the doors open. But then there's like, I looked at their website. They only have male elders. I thought this was 2022. You're like, really? Like you haven't even come. You don't know anything. Don't you know that my life is ran by a woman? (laughs) If you knew me at all, you would know who's wearing the pants at home. (laughs) I'm wearing the pants. Darcy wears the dress, but it's a metaphorical expression (laughs) to talk about the sheer strength of character and brilliance of my lady. Uh, But I I just think we get caught up in these hot topics. We want to talk about about sexuality. We want to talk about politics. And and, and all of a sudden, the church gets wrapped up and sucked into a variety of of, of cultural, intense things that are coming at us constantly and we do need to care about those things but we can never care about those things at the expense of the centrality of the gospel because the goal of the Christian life is not behavior modification it is Christ likeness it is Christ in us I've been accused of preaching one message I'm not sure that there's ever been a preacher who didn't that was actually worth anything because there is only one message to preach And all I believe my responsibility to do is to bring the gospel to you again and again and again and again and from as many different angles as possible. And I pray to God that at the end of my time, whenever that time may be, a door of hope, the one thing that people will say is, he always talked about Jesus. That D.L. Moody quote of him going up to a, a, a pastor coming up to him and said, I've heard you teach 11 times um, and, I, and you've given the same message. I can repeat every word. And he said, I've heard you give 11 different messages and I don't remember anything. And I think that that was a very wise statement from Moody because Paul said, I have determined to know nothing amongst you but Christ and him crucified. Christian living is incarnational. And Peter's purpose, we need to keep in mind that when Peter begins to dig into what 
does a Christian community look like? What does obedience look like? What does sanctification look like? It can never be disconnected from the two supreme laws in Scripture. Love God and love your neighbor. In other words, motivation to change your behavior, as the language that you guys have been using over the summer, to go deeper, is not deeper into Christ's likeness apart from Christ. Everything that we do is that we might know him more fully and witness to him more fully. And it has to be motivated by love. This is why Augustine was so genius in his confessions and as well as much of City of God, but there are some really boring parts. Uh, But his whole focus on displaced affections, that nothing will motivate us to live the Christian life if it is not motivated by love. If we don't believe we are loved and if we don't become conduits of that love, if we don't give that love away, it will spoil It'll go bad. And once again, we will lose our ability to hear the still soft voice. The goal of the Christian life is not arriving, it's knowing. And I think that the church has to understand when we talk about how do we sanctify our lives and what does it look like for sin to be dead and how do we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I wanna pose some important questions today because I think that often we forget that the thing that is often most tolerated in the church is pride. And yet pride is the source of all sin, all sin. And I would say that the prostitute is in way better shape in the hands of God than the preacher who thinks that he knows everything. And I think that this is an important thing for us to recognize that what Peter is calling us to is a place of surrender, of humility, of compassion and concern because Christ is concerned for us. One of my favorite passages is in, is in the writings of Peter. Cast your cares upon Christ, for he cares for you. What a beautiful passage. So I want us to consider three things. What incarnational living means is that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That our submission to Jesus is evidenced in Christ by his spirit now working through us and through us toward one another and toward this lost world that Jesus is in the business of seeking and saving. And so when we ask ourselves, what are we called to then as a community? We have to answer, I think in these passages, as we consider 1 Peter chapter 3 all the way through um, uh, verse 8 all the way through chapter 4 verse 8 what we're going to see is that we are called to be number one Jesus oriented and other oriented number two we're called to be Jesus conscious and hope cleansed and number three we are called to be Jesus surrendered and grace obsessed so let's begin with the first one we are called to be Jesus centered and other oriented. We pick up in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses are behind me. If you don't have your Bible with you, you should bring your Bible. Uh, But read these verses with me. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, be like-minded. He's following on his previous argument that that call to submission, do whatever it takes to live as peaceably as possible in the home, in the job, in, um, as a citizen. Do all that is necessary so that 
your witness to Jesus is not hindered. Show the world that Jesus is Lord in your life is essentially what he's saying. So finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic. Notice what he says here. He's not giving you a list of to-dos. He's saying these are the qualities, and I love that because it's hard to define these down to like very specifics because all of us are different kinds of personalities. All of us have different temperaments, but these things should be consistent in those who say Jesus is Lord. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he moves into, um, he's basically drawing from Psalm 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And, and this is one of those passages, that drawing from Psalm 34, it is very easy to disconnect that from where we began. All of a sudden we see it as a different, a different call. This, this becomes behavior modification. And in each of your minds, when you hear those words, this is one of the things I was pointing out last week, we hear different things. I'm so I've kind of been nerding out all summer long on a guy that's considered the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, um, Wittgenstein. And he wrote a book called, his last book that was published was called Philosophical Investigations. It came out after he died. He was a freak of nature genius. Um, and his, most of his work, I would say 80% of it is impenetrable. And I'm just reading it out of insecurity to make myself feel smarter. Now, I'm, I'm, fascinated, I'm fascinated with his main obsession, which is the thing that defines us as human beings is our ability to communicate that language is the unique reality, um, complex language, the ability to actually express um, interior ideas, but language is also the thing that isolates us from one another because we mean different things by what we say. So when one person, I, one of the great examples of this through Door of Hope's history is we've had many elders and, and many staff. When Door of Hope was founded, I, before I even had a single service, I had written out what we call the four pillars. And I meant something very specific by those pillars. But what I found is by nature, as people take ownership in a church, because not my church, it's Jesus' church, but every church has a unique identity, and that identity is built on the cross, on community, on simplicity in the city. What I found is nobody was ever in agreement of what we meant by any of those words. Even when we talk about things like atonement, there are a multitude of interpretations of those things, but there are certain things that we need to know and we need to be on the same page. And I think that Wittgenstein's concern is that one of the great disconnects with humanity is that we've lost our sense of language, we don't understand the words that we utilize, which has always been a concern of mine as, as a Christian because our vocabulary is sacred. I remember a young girl being offended at Door of Hope that I used the word born again. She thought it was a cheesy word that seemed outdated because she had seen that movie Saved. Remember that movie, Millennials? 
and, and, and it's like, man, that's just like such a churchy word, born again. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you because Jesus said it. Like, I understand churchy words. There are many things that people say in churches. I'm like, I don't, like, you don't have to call me brother. You can just call me Josh. Like, it's cool. Like, I understand how we can fall into lots of, and if you're like, are you mad that I called you brother? I'm not, but it's funny to me. Um, and I laugh inside when you do. Um, so <laughs> I laugh when people call me pastor. I'm like, oh, no, don't put that on me. Don't put that pressure on me. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but our loss of language actually deeply impacts us. And so I think it's important that we define what we mean by what we say. And one of the things that we do that tends to be problematic, especially when we study scripture, is we, we take things out of context and we don't keep what we are studying in the proper context of interpreting everything. I am Christological. I believe firmly that God has nothing to say except what he has said and continues to say in Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of all that scripture is pointing to. The living word is only living if it's pointing to the living Christ, who is the living word. Christ is the, the fullness of God's revelation given to us. And there are still mysteries involved, but we have to interpret all of Scripture through Jesus and through the gospel of grace. Otherwise, we end up with all kinds of problems. And so for me, I'm committed to a radical interpretation of Scripture through the lens of grace, through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the cross. And when we actually begin to do that, all of a sudden, the, the scripture comes together, and sometimes it, there's conflict, and that's okay because mystery is something that we should protect within the church. We don't need to explain everything. If God could be explained down to the essence, he's not God, you are. And so I think it's important for us to, to ask the question, how does this passage fit into the lens of the gospel, into the, into the lens of grace? And the first thing we could do is just make sure that we do not con disconnect verses 8 and 9 um, from 10 through 12. Because if you just look at the psalm, you're left in the psalm out of context, uh, which is the psalmist defending God's um, sovereignty and his righteousness. Um, here, what you end up with is just simply behavior modification. And that behavior modification becomes dependent on how you define things like evil. Because what you do that you would say is not evil someone else would say is evil. I mean, I know this because my first day at work in church full-time, the night before I went to church, uh, to the church, to my new job, this was, a, this was in Spokane, Washington, my first full-time job. I moved to Spokane the day before Darcy and Henry got there. Henry was only a year old. And I went and saw the new Harry Potter movie because I had read the books and I thought they were awesome. And they weren't even all out yet. They were just, I was, and I'd only been a believer for two years. And I go to my first staff meeting ever. I've never been in a staff meeting. And they're like introducing me. They're like, Josh, what did you do last night? And I went and I said, I went and saw Harry Potter. It was pretty cool. And I'm not joking. Like there were two women that audibly gasped. Like, <gasps> And then I immediately got a lecture from my new boss that Harry Potter is a perversion of power and it celebrates witchcraft, which is why we here at, our, at this church do not celebrate Halloween. We do harvest parties. And I'm like, oh, crap. Where am I? 
what just happened? <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay. I kind of like it. Have any of you actually read it? And they're like, no. Why would we read that? And I'm like, did you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It has witch in the title. Um, <laughs> and, and, but it, it doesn't matter because what that shows is the nature of selective sanctification. It's the ways that we make ourselves feel okay in the world. And it's okay if you have a conviction that Harry Potter's not right. I don't, that's not a big deal. That's not what we should be battling over. You have every right to hold to that. Like, I listen to music that some people are like, man, it just kind of messes with my spirit. You know how some people are really sensitive to kinds of music? Like, I still, I like Black Sabbath. Like, I like them. Quite a bit, actually. <laughs> I like a lot of, I like Nine Inch Nails, and he's pretty creepy. Um, and, and some of, I like horror movies. But some people are like, I can't, that, that, that's okay. The point is, is if we were actually functioning in compassion and grace, and recognizing that what's actually important is are we reflecting Jesus? Now, there are things that are, are very clear. So take Philippians, for example. It says, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is true, meditate on these things. But every one of you have a different definition of what is lovely and what is pure and what is true. And so I'm not trying to move us toward relativism where there is no truth. I'm just saying that we're, we're focusing on things that are almost impossible to define while the actual thing that is the foundation of all truth that's right before us, which is Jesus, is available to us. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I think this is important. One of the, you know, I love working with Pip. Pip has a really, like, I'm, I'm convicted often by his kindness. Um, and he is extremely sensitive to, to a lot of things that I'll watch. And you know what I love about him? He just get up and walk away. And one time he's like, do you think I'm being, do you think I'm being like a prude or something? I'm like, no, I think you're just being a man that lives by your conviction. You're not putting that on me. And sometimes just actually the thing that makes me think about what I'm watching that I'm comfortable with that he's not is actually how gracious he is makes me think, should I be more uncomfortable with this? And actually, if we function, I'm sorry I didn't ask you if I could use that as an illustration, but I just wanted to honor you and, uh, um, and quit making me feel bad. So I set up a week of horror film movies that we're going to watch together because I need you to meet me where I'm at. <laughs> but there's a way that we can live with convictions around non-essential things that actually will lead to greater sanctification within the community, is my point. This is what Peter is getting at. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. How is that accomplished? It's by being Jesus-centered. Jesus-centered, which means that Christ himself is the sole authority of my life. Sin is my decision to live my life, the reason sin is stupidity is because we are choosing nothingness. By choosing to be our own gods, we are choosing to be something that actually doesn't exist. And God has, no, God has nothing to say to a person that they're, own God, they're their own God because that person doesn't exist to them because they're being someone that God did not intend for them. But Jesus-centeredness is that the first thing that we have to ask 
because it is way too easy. This is why Luther was so focused on a difference between theology of glory, which is the glory of man, versus the theology of the cross, is the theology of the cross always pummels us and does not give space for us to feel good about our performance. It only gives us space to feel good about God's love toward us. And it gives him all credit and all glory for all that happens that is good and honoring, recognizing that even the things that Jesus does in and through me, it, by his Holy Spirit, when I am yielded to him, there is still sin involved. But God is gracious enough to work through that mixture. That's why I said, like, I used to think that the gospel was about Jesus removing the mixture. What I realize now is that the gospel is about Jesus utilizing the mixture that is me in spite of me because he's gracious, because he has dealt with sin once and for all. And the more that I accept that love and the more that I move into that love, funny thing, the things that once held me in their grip have very little appeal. Because what I care about most, I actually, there is, I almost take nothing in this world seriously, especially myself. But I take Jesus and his love and his grace extremely seriously. And I think it allows me to navigate the insanity of life without losing my mind. And I think that we take ourselves way too seriously. We take our ideas. I mean, it's a proven fact that we are the most arrogant, arrogant generation that has ever lived in human, humanity's history due to the fact of how much information we are given. And that information comes to us in these little bits, little bits and little bits, constantly infiltrating us to where we actually think we know things when we actually don't know a lot, and even the things that we do know are often wrong. <laughs> and I found that after reading Daniel Kenneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, and then his follow-up book, Noise, which you guys should read that, because you will never trust your own brain again, ever. Because he, one of the things he talks about is that we have a bias, an, an intellectual bias that convinces us. Actually, we are convinced by our own brains that we have answers to things that are way too complex for us to understand. I just, watched, just was looking on, on Instagram and someone made this outrageous statement in the, in the week that the Queen of England dies. Um, and, and it was just this railing on the Queen and the monarchy for being responsible for the greatest colonialism and all these evils. And I'm like, you don't know the Queen. What you're, and you're a Christian. What you should be talking about is the fact that it's just the evidence, the mixture is just the evidence that sin is at play in everything. And whatever, whatever injustice or inequality has happened through human history, I guarantee that every one of us play a part in it. Because that's sin. And that's why the gospel's so good. That's why we must be Jesus-centered. And to be sympathetic and love one another, to be compassionate and humble. I mean, this is the thing that I love. Darcy will call me on this, because I, be, I can be judgy about things that don't matter. Like, I'm judging some of you for what you're wearing right now, but I don't mean it. I'm just joking, I'm not. <laughs> uh, but but it's, it's funny, we can be judging on like stupid stuff, externals or 
taste in music. Evan and I always have this joke, like, is there such a thing as bad taste in music? And we're like, yes, yes, there is. And Ian loves to rub in our face his love of Dave Matthews' band. And I think that's possibly sinful. And, but, but Jesus died for him. It doesn't change his standing. If I was Jesus, it would impact things. Um, and you're like, I like Dave Matthews. That's great, because it doesn't matter. Because that's subjective. What matters is do you love Jesus and do you love people? Including Dave Matthews. Do you love him? In the name of Jesus. I do. He seems like a very sweet man. I liked him in Win dixie <laughs> You're like, I've never seen that movie. You should. He's pretty good. <laughs> Sympathetic, compassionate, humble. Notice all of these words, the thing that Peter is calling us to be, Jesus-centeredness, being a life identified in Christ and Christ working in us will always move us out of ourselves toward others. If you're like, I'm an introvert, I don't care. You're like, I'm an extrovert, I still don't care. What matters is that we are all called to be people who live our lives not for ourselves. And the fact is, is that's actually where one is the most happy. The reason joy is so elusive for most people in modern society is because we have been told the great lie that the most important thing is yourself. And then all of a sudden you can't figure out why we're so stinking lonely. When the happiest moments in my life is when I live most fully outward and for others. And the most, the most unhappy I am is when I get into what Darcy calls the, it's kind of like a impenetrable bubble where I sort of retreat into myself when I become overwhelmed by life and I kind of disappear into my, in my little studio when I'm making music and I'm doing all these things. I had a friend say to me, he's like, I, I go, I feel like, you know, making music is a really healthy thing. He goes, all you're doing is still just feeding your ego. It's you trying to prove to the world that you're, you're doing something that matters and is meaningful. No, there's a lot of truth in that statement. And what's most powerful is actually, that's why for me, the most fulfilling music's ever been is when I've been doing worship because it's so not about being, worship is never gonna be like top 40. It's never gonna be like the next, it's not gonna be the next Radiohead because it's so other oriented toward Jesus when it's, when it's right, when it's spirit filled. And the name of Jesus is offensive to those who are perishing and therefore, to name Christ in your song, you are basically saying, I am committed to never allowing my music to ever break into the mainstream because I'm doing it not for that because fame is almost contrary to the, to, to the life of the Christian. Uh, it, not almost, it is. No, I want to live for Jesus. And that Jesus-centeredness leads to an other-orientedness. And this is the key when now when he says, who would love a good life love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. The evil is being not loving toward Christ and toward others. The evil is doing things that actually rob Jesus of his lordship over your life. You know what's funny is we spend a lot of time thinking about things that we shouldn't do or I can't do. But I would say this, the question people ask me, like, what can I do and what can't I do? I would say, if you cannot meditate on Christ while you're doing it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. It's a pretty simple rule. And you're like, what about, and don't ask me. 
I did this with a men's study and they're like, immediately they're just wanting to know about intimacy. I'm like, I think you should be able to meditate on Christ always. I think to the pure, all things are pure. And I think that this is the thing is that when Jesus is at the center, that's where the freedom becomes real. And that is the freedom to actually live a life that is sympathetic toward those that are around us, compassionate. And that humility is, is strength under control. It's recognizing who you are in Christ and wanting to live as fully to that picture, not more than or less than what he intended for you. It's meekness. Humility. This is why Romans 13 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We have to be very careful to not take things like the Sermon on the Mount and teachings from James or 1 Peter where, where there is a call to holiness and sanctification and just turn it into new kinds of law. It always has to be, it always has to be interpreted through the lens of the gospel and through the fulfilled, perfect work of Jesus because it's about him who is righteous working in and through us. Not only are we called to be Jesus-centered and other-oriented, but I, I think it's important for us to, to look at the, these two verses that I think will help us kind of d- settle this in our minds. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, for I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a pretty strong statement and one worth, and Paul says that many times in many ways. It's also what Jesus said, without me, you can do what? Nothing, which means that all that we do in our own strength ultimately leads to nothing. To be other-oriented, 1 John 4, 19 through 21, in an age where the Christian, Christian living has been turned into my relationship with Jesus and I come to church to find out how I can learn to be a better Christian and I start, I, I'm coming for how it can fulfill me. Listen, if you, have, if you do not have an other-oriented vision of the gospel, you will inevitably live a life of law because knowing Jesus leads us away from law into real freedom that comes through our servanthood to him, are actually becoming slaves of him. <laughs> I love this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Who is our brother? Who is our sister? It's interchangeable with neighbor. And neighbor is anyone and everyone at any given moment, in any given day, next to you, beside you, in front of you, behind you. And this is why we have to remember that the goal of Door of Hope is not to become a cloistered, inward-turning, gazing, there is no incarnational living that isn't living for the world. Everything we do must proclaim for God so loved the world. Which means we exist for the good of those outside these walls. And if we don't have an outward focus, we will not have the inward sanctification, the depth that we long for. It's important to remember that. Number two, we are called to be Jesus conscious and hope cleansed. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
And we'll break down just verses 13 through 22. This kind of comes in two parts. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere what? Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I love it. People always use this verse uh, as, um, as the great argument for apologetics, that arguing people into the kingdom of heaven is something that we're called to do. I would say we are never called to argue people into the kingdom of heaven. I've never argued anyone into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saves and Jesus draws. We just witness but we should have an understanding of why we believe the things we believe. Nothing is worse than listening to someone talk about the gospel and you in your heart go, I don't think you actually believe what you're telling me. And sadly, I have heard way too many people talk about their Christianity in, in a way that is so detached from relational language that all they're giving me is, I do this and I don't do this. And I do this and I don't do this. That's not a Christian. You're, that's just stoicism. <laughs> what we want to be is a people that talk about someone that we know. And we talk about someone that we love because we have first been loved by him. When we are told that we preach Christ crucified, all that means is we are introducing people to someone who is with us all the time and we have attuned our hearts and minds to his voice. That's why Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Following him is our sanctification. That is our sanctification. And I, and I think that this is the thing is that to be Jesus conscious is to recognize that, that he is with us, which is what allows us, because I know that I'm loved, because I know that the best is yet to come, because I know that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, I can enter into the difficulty of living out the Christian life without losing myself, without abandoning my faith, because I cannot handle the criticism that is coming from the world and the culture around me. Let me ask you a question. Has there been any political party or any cultural, cultural belief system that offers you any actual hope? And I would say no. I'm like, when people like critique Christianity, I'm like, great, give me, a, give me a better grid. Give me a better foundation. Give me something else to believe then. Show me someone more beautiful than Jesus. Oh, how can you say he's beautiful? I'm like, if you can't say that he's beautiful, I would argue you have not read the Gospels because you cannot be confronted with the words of Jesus and not be overwhelmed by the beauty of his character. That's why I always say, if Jesus is not the son of God, then I would have to worship the men who invented him. Because I have never come across anything as compelling as Jesus. Nothing. And I would argue the only thing that makes us compelling is our belief that nothing is more compelling than Jesus. <laughs> we are called to be Jesus conscious. Nothing is harder than actually practicing his presence. Have you guys ever read that little book by Brother Lawrence? What a beautiful little book. Here is a, he was a lame monk. Like he had, he had some kind of physical ailment that kept him from being as mobile as he wanted. And he, and he was a dishwasher in his monastery. And he just talks, the whole book is just this tiny little collection of thoughts around what does it look like to just 
be naturally supernatural, to be aware that the point of the gospel is, is to be aware that God is with us and for us, that he is within us, that he wants to work through us. I think that this is important. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, which means no greater discipline. If you want to talk about spiritual disciplines, disciplining yourself toward a regular recognition that Christ is ready to speak to you the moment you're ready to lift your head and listen. To be defined by his presence. And all you have to ask is, well, how do I know if I'm listening to Jesus or listening to the world? I just ask, what do you spend the majority of your time doing? What is, it, what is it that you spend your time looking at? What is it that you spend your time reading? What is it that you, and this is, you know, one of the things that reveals to me is how many good things are idols for me, including this gorgeous woman in front of me. One of my great, I always say Darcy's my greatest gift and my greatest idol. I wanted to tattoo Gypsy Queen under her face, which I tattooed on my leg. By the way, I'm getting really good. If anyone would like a crummy tattoo from me, I'm ready. I've tattooed my legs so much over, someday I'm gonna wear shorts, I'm almost covered now. I even tattooed a picture of Chris Benson who's playing in the band on my upper thigh just because I could. Because he said I wouldn't, and he was horrified. And now he wants me to tattoo his twin brother whom I've never met next to him, <laughs> which I think would be pretty funny. Someone's like, what about when you're 85? What are you gonna, I'm like, who wants to look at an 85 year old man's legs? whether he's tattooed or not tattooed. Who cares? And you're like, I'm 85, my legs are wonderful. No, they're not. <laughs> so, to be Jesus conscious, and that, this is what it, I'm not joking though when I say like, I see how many things captivate my attention. I'm a man who is fascinated with everything. It's my greatest curse and my greatest strength is that I love learning. But that love of learning can quickly lead me away from my love of Jesus. And one of the reasons I was so fried before the elder sent me on the sabbatical is because I began to love the ministry for Jesus more than Jesus. Which actually ultimately made me hate the ministry because I couldn't find Jesus in it anymore. And that's a scary place to be. And thank you, church and elders, that, oh yeah, your pastor is human and we can lose sight of the most important things, which is why we need one another. And I had a group of elders and a wife who actually did an intervention and said, my husband is not doing well. His dad's died, he's overwhelmed, he's, he's fried. We just came out of COVID and he needs a real break. Can you help? I didn't ask for it. I was, this is what you're gonna do. <laughs> and my submission to that request is actually what led me to feeling Jesus's presence even as I come to you today in the sense of just being reminded of who I am in Christ. Because uh, once you lose Jesus for the ministry, then, you're, then, you're, then you are just fallen victim to making sure that everybody's satisfied with everything that you say, which guarantees that people will leave, by the way. Because everybody has an opinion about what church should be, especially if you come from a different church. I even found that when people come from churches that were actually relatively abusive, but it was a, a life-changing experience for them. They don't want you to be like their last church, abusive, but they want you still to do church just like that church did. And this is the nature of what happens if we don't have Jesus at the center, we can't survive those things. We can't survive lifting our children up to the position of God 
Because like Darcy and I are experiencing the grief of having a son who's thriving on the other side of the country, if we allowed ourselves to keep him in an elevated place, all it will do is destroy us rather than the ability to celebrate the fact that he's thriving in a place far away from us, which crushes us because we miss him terribly. But he's not my God. Jesus is with us always. You see, when we make anything else our God, it's always threatened. And this is why we need to be able to give the reason for the hope that is within us. What a great reminder to actually continually ask, us the, ask ourselves the question, can I? And am I hopeful in Jesus? I love what happens when we become Jesus conscious. I love this. Do this with gentleness and respect. But once again, a great thing when it comes to witnessing. How do you in- enter into conversations about Jesus with, with non-believers? As an evangelistic personality, I actually think it's very, very easy. Um, and it's easy when you really know Jesus and you really love him and you want people to experience the freedom that you yourself have experienced. But if you have not experienced the freedom and if you do not really love him, trying to share anything about him of any sort of, any sort of and, and I would even argue this, even people that share Jesus where they don't even have real relationship with him. It's fascinating. God will use anywhere where Jesus is lifted up. But I promise you, you will be more effective. You yourself will be more effective when you are speaking out of the overflow of your own heart. And to love Jesus is not to pull away from the broken world. It's actually to push into it. To, to draw as many people out of the, of the damage and the brokenness and the destruction that's around us by inviting them to come and meet the one who's changed me. And I think that this is the beautiful thing. Keeping a clear conscience when we, isn't about sinning less. Keeping a clear conscience is about being pure of heart, being single-minded. Being, the clear conscience is how do we share with people because nothing violates the conscience like treating someone as a project. Are you okay with people? One of the things that helps me as an evangelist is that it's not my responsibility to save them. And I am called to be an absolute respecter of, their, of them being made in the image of God, which means I have to honor their willingness or unwillingness to say yes to Jesus. And it doesn't change anything. I'm just as fascinated in them when they want to know Jesus as I am when they don't want to know Jesus. Because I am called to care about people just as you are. And when we treat people like projects, they can feel it, by the way. If you're bringing someone to church to get them saved. How about just, I'm so excited about this thing, you gotta see this thing that I'm excited about. Anyone that's worked with me knows how impossible it is to work with me. Because everything I'm excited about, I wanna share it with others. And I can't even really enjoy it unless they're sharing it with me. I watched this episode of television two times in a row in the last two days just because I wanted my wife to see it with me. And it wasn't even good enough to really qualify as watching two times in a row, but the joy for me was the shared experience. And I think that that should be what drives us as Christians, is we want to share Jesus because he wants to share himself through us with others. If it is God's will to suffer for doing good and for doing evil, if it is God's will, what is God's will? I... I read this sermon today, it was so maddening. It said that God's will is his, is his meticulous providence. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're way too smart to say something so dumb. 
God's will is that you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and love, neighbor, and love your neighbor as yourself. Meticulous providence is, a, is, you might as well just be an atheist who's driven by determinism, which means that there is nothing that happens that God hasn't ordained, which means that he now is responsible for every terrible thing you do. There's no logic in that. And actually, I believe even the philosophy of it flows out and people take, people say they, they hold to it, but they mean different things. Once again, language matters. But those that actually hold to the idea that everything that happens has been determined and dictated by some sort of secret decree. You are put into a very dangerous place where now God is responsible ultimately for sin. And everyone appeals to mystery at some point. I just would argue we should probably appeal to mystery a little earlier in the game. I would say that God is absolutely sovereign over redemptive history, but I don't need to make him responsible for everything that happens in order for him to be sovereign. What I would say is that his sovereignty means that he can weave into his redemptive history every dissonant note of human existence and bring something beautiful out of it. That's the power of the gospel. God's will for us is that we love him and love others, which will inevitably lead to suffering is the point. And that's why Peter says to be Jesus conscious um, and to be hope cleansed we have to go to the second section. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here's the argument in verses 18 through 22. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure that anyone does. Some believe that Jesus, I don't think that Jesus went down and mocked people in hell. Like suckers, I don't think that's what he's saying. Like, I'm pretty sure that's contrary to the spirit of God. But there is a, I do believe that the cross, that Jesus experienced hell for us, tasted the depths of death, and his death on the cross reverberated and affected not just the seen world, but the unseen world as well. And his absolute triumph and victory was proclaimed in all of the cosmos. That's what I believe. I think that aligns with scripture. But nobody's going to be able to speak to the details of that. We don't need to be speculative. All I can say is that what we should be confident in is that there is a seen reality and there is an unseen reality. There is a spiritual world and there is a physical world. And the new heaven and new earth will be some kind of beautiful merger of those two things in a way that they will both be experienced as fully as the other. All I can tell you here is that what Peter is pushing at is Jesus' work on the cross, which is the heartbeat of what it means to go deeper because we wouldn't be able to without his work on our behalf. This is why the gospel is down to earth. We don't climb to God, he comes down to us. To those who were disobedient long ago when God, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God, a clear conscience toward God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. It's a beautiful picture of Christ 
perfect and complete work. Why Luther said everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is, when we talk about the incarnation, it's not just his entrance into the human form. It is God's entrance into the human existence. The creator becomes creature. It's about his perfect life of obedience. It's about his death on the cross, taking into himself sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteous. It's not just about his death, but it also is about his resurrection after three days. It's about his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and it is about the sending of his spirit. That is the full incarnation. And why we are able to live incarnationally is because the spirit of Christ comes to dwell within us. And all power and all authority has been given to Jesus, which is why we should give ourselves, train our minds to think upon him. What a beautiful thing. Now, if we have died with Christ, it says in Romans, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What then does it mean to be hope cleansed? Is that the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of his spirit, the spirit is a deposit within our hearts. When we live with a Christ consciousness, we are constantly reminded that there is an eternal reality that awaits us. That there will be a time when time no longer functions the way that we understand time. It will be when the new heavens and the new earth comes. There will be a time when sin will not be a part of our story and the wounds in the hands of Christ on his head and in his feet will be the reminder of what it is that we have been saved from fully, completely. This is why we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. It is a now and not yet reality. And that now and not yet reality is what should create within us hope. The Christian concept of hope is different than the world's concept of hope. Hope, we hope that the Blazers win. I hope for all sorts of things. Hope, as a Christian perspective, is that combination of desire and expectancy. I desire to be with Christ, and I expect that it's going to happen. And here is the beauty. When we live with a Jesus consciousness, for who has understood the mind of the Lord, 1 Corinthians, to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Jesus has put his spirit within us. What we have to attune ourselves to is how do we allow the teacher, the helper, the paraclete, the spirit of God actually teach us. Maybe we're just crummy students, but we have the mind of Christ. And hope cleansed is driven by this verse, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in them purifies themselves as he is pure. In other words, our expectation for a future eternity with Christ is the thing that purifies us in the moment. That's a beautiful passage. We don't talk about end times. We don't talk about the return of Jesus enough. Maybe we, you know, have some sort of like leftovers, hangover. 
uh, or Left Behind Hangover. Leftovers is actually a really good show. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that the, uh, the, the, the fact is, is that, you know, there was a massive emphasis for a long time on end times and the coming of Christ and what is the meaning of Revelation and all that. And so much so that they even made a video game out of the Left, Left Behind series. I remember they were selling it at the church I worked at in California, which was interesting. And, but I think we can't, just because something entered into the popular culture mindset, why do we abandon these things? It's biblical. We should have an eternal perspective. We should be praying every day, come Lord Jesus, come. For to die is to gain and to live is Christ. Finally, we are called to be Jesus surrendered. I'm gonna go, I know it's a long message, but it's a massive passage. We're called to be Jesus surrendered and grace obsessed. And I'll just close really quickly with this. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. And what he's saying there is that our identity is so wrapped up in Christ that when we die with him, it allows the sinless Christ to be seen in and through us. That happens as we daily surrender to him. And not only to be Jesus-centered and Jesus-conscious, but we need to be Jesus-surrendered. I surrender to you, Lord. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for all evil human desires. Evil can be defined, I would argue, by our rebellion against God's sovereign rule. Now, a whole bunch of things fall under that category. A rejection of his grace and a rebellion against rule. Nothing is more terrifying than the evil that comes out of us worshiping the good. It is evil to love anything in life more than you love Jesus, according to scripture, which is why it's really good news that you were saved by grace. Because I promise you, if you were to be asked, do you love your kid more than you love Jesus? Most of us would have to be honest and say, today, yes. Maybe if you have like, well, my kid's really colicky. Absolutely not. I love Jesus way more. Um, <laughs> or my kid's 13. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> uh, the fact is, is that our hearts are fickle and we tend to worship what can be seen much more comfortably than what cannot be seen. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Love God and love neighbor. There it is again. The will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies. I mean, we all have so many friends that, you know, just all about the orgies, um, carousing and detestable idolatry. You see, here's the thing. If you look at these things. Paul's, or Peter and Paul both are just pointing out what was common in the culture. The sexual depravity within our own culture is, is, a, is a reality that you can't live without being, being subjected to it in a million ways every day. The hypersexualization of our culture is what has moved the world toward a, a whole you know, explosion of Kim Kardashian replicas and, and our desire to, you know, I, I can't even look at Instagram without being sent something that will somehow define how I can now have a six pack at 49. And what that probably says is sometime I possibly looked up, how can one have a six pack at 49? <laughs> Which all that proves is that we are constantly driven by the very culture that is shaping us. And so 
this list actually isn't that shocking, is it? Because it's like everything that makes for a good movie. And, that's, and that shouldn't make you feel comfortable because Paul said, and you, oh man, who are evil, who approve of those who do such things. I sometimes wonder with some of the entertainment that I watch, am I essentially approving of the behavior that's being modeled in the entertainment? That's a very complex question. One that I would say, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> do you remember that, Mike Myers? <laughs> talk, I'm gonna give you a thought, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. I remember going through that when I came to faith at 27, how it was so baffling to my friends that I wouldn't do drugs anymore. And, that, and it wasn't because I'm like, I know Jesus, I can't do drugs. It was, I know Jesus, and I don't want anything to actually hinder my ability to meditate on Jesus. Or, I know, like... Do, you know, why don't you look at this? Why don't you, you know, everybody's doing this. You should do this. I'm like, I, I don't want to do anything that hinders my ability to know Jesus. It, the motivation wasn't, I'm going to get in trouble if I do this. It was, I don't have to do this anymore because I have this and it's so much better. That's a way better motivation, friends. <laughs> it actually is one that has the ability to last. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Yes, there is a coming judgment. And yes, it is real. Every person will stand before God and must give an account of their lives. And the only answer that, is, that God um, will accept from us is, I trusted in you. For better or for worse, Jesus, mixture that I am, I trusted in you. But too often we're like, no, no, that's not enough. Jesus is going to, he's not going to accept me because I did this. No, 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 he already knew you were going to do all those things. Why do you think he came and died? It's the gospel. And why are we so, why do Christians get so excited about people being judged ultimately? We shouldn't desire, desire that anyone go to hell. And if we actually believed it was a reality, we'd be a lot more in, in, intentional about making sure that people know that we love Jesus. Jesus surrendered and grace obsessed. Let me close with this passage. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. I don't know what that means either. But it means something. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but living according to God in regards to the spirit. My, my speculation is that the gospel's impact transcends time working backward and forward, kind of like Willy Wonka's glass elevator. That's what I think. Can go sideways and upways and always. You remember that line? <laughs> I just immediately heard Gene Wilder's voice in my head. And I read the book as well, but I like the movie better. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Notice that the end of all things is near. Was Peter jumping the gun? The end of all things is near. He said that 2,000 years ago, but it was also Peter that said that 2,000 years is but a day to the Lord. 1,000 years is but a day to the Lord. The end of the age began the moment Jesus entered into the world. We live in a time of, it's an apocalyptic age. And the coming of Christ is coming. And we are closer today than we were yesterday. And therefore, we are to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 
Darcy and I were just having this conversation today, guys. Things that we realize that it's when we get overwhelmed and stressed, how we can turn to TV, how we can turn to food, how we can turn to drink as ways to escape the day. But the day is all we have. We don't know if we have tomorrow. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Jesus surrendered and grace obsessed. The reason I say grace obsessed and not love obsessed is because I believe grace gives a more robust definition to love. Love without contingency. Love without contingency. A love that is generated by God himself. He is love and he loves you in spite of you. And that is good news. Submit yourselves therefore to God Resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? By submitting to God, not by going out and trying to resist the devil. Jesus said, protect us from the evil one. No, the devil is resisted when you are surrendered to Jesus. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. What, what beautiful relational language this is. That there is an in, God in his sovereignty, his decree to allow us space to move toward him or away from him. That's real relationship. That's not determinism. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James isn't being mean at the end. That's what saints are. Saints are people that are sinners and double-minded, but are aware of it, which is why they continually surrender to Jesus. And be grace-obsessed. First John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. And perfect love casts out fear. Incarnational living is not fearlessness, but it is a love that has so captivated us that it overrides whatever fears we might feel. I can't not tell people about Jesus. Your sanctification comes through your outward movement toward others as you receive him. Go deeper with Christ, but test that against how it is pushing you into greater depth with one another. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. And my prayer today is that we would live holy lives, but our holiness would not be defined by the little things we do right or wrong, but our holiness would be defined by our total surrender to you in spite of our mixture. We give you ourselves, the good and the bad, and we trust you are bigger than our brokenness and that you have dealt with it once and for all. And I pray for anyone in here that does not know your love, does not believe in their heart that they are loved that your Holy Spirit would pour out your love into their hearts and minds right now, that all sin has been forgiven and that they would cast themselves in total dependence upon that and just cry out to you, Jesus, I need you, help me, thank you, forgive me, show me your love and help me to be a conduit of that love. May we be a people that are centered around you, Jesus, that are conscious of your presence and that are surrendered to you as King and Lord every day. We pray these things in your name, amen. 
Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.